0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome to Archive Sloof, the podcast in which I, Georgina Fow, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. For today's archive story, I am going to take us back to explore the lives of a few people who were caught up in a brutal conflict that has particular resonance for us today. The Spanish Civil War You may have noticed, like me, that news commentators reporting on the war in Ukraine Often reach for historical parallels which can perhaps help us better understand what is happening. One especially common theme is comparing Putin's unprovoked attack on Ukraine with the aggressive expansionism of Nazi Germany, which makes Putin's invasion of Ukraine only the latest in a series of recent events that echo the ominous times of the 1930s from economic recessions to the rise of right wing populist leaders and the invasion has engendered another remarkable parallel with the 1930s, the willingness of thousands of people from elsewhere in the world to put their lives on the line and travel to a foreign country to fight against authoritarianism. When a civil war broke out in Spain in 1936, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany provided support, in the form of weapons, bombers and soldiers, to the Nationalists, a right-wing alliance seeking to overthrow the left-wing Spanish government, whose supporters were known as Republicans. The Soviet Union, in the meantime, backed the Republicans, whose soldiers and supporters included a large contingent of communists. And thus, Spain became the first battleground in the war between these two opposing ideologies, fascism and communism. The war was in fact far more complicated than a simple showdown between the far right and far left, and we will go into the war itself in more detail later. But the crucial point was, to outside observers, to people who had never before had the remotest connection to Spain but were alarmed by the spread of fascism across Europe, this war finally provided an opportunity to do something practical, to fight back against fascism. The parallel between foreign fighters joining Ukraine's International Legion and the international volunteers of the Spanish Civil War struck me especially strongly because it is a subject I have taken a personal interest in in the past. As anyone who has listened to the trailer for my podcast will know, I have spent most of my career working in primary source digitization. One personal favorite project which I developed several years ago but that sadly never came to fruition was a proposed educational resource on the international brigades of the Spanish Civil War. Over many months, I rooted around archives in the UK and USA, reading the letters, diaries and memoirs of dozens of men and women who left their families, jobs and lives behind to serve as soldiers, nurses, ambulance drivers or any other way they could help the Republican cause. I also read many books on the subject, Among them, perhaps the most famous first hand account by arguably the most famous international volunteer Hommage to Catalonia by George Orwell, a fascinating book which I highly recommend to anyone wanting to get a crash course into this topic and the experiences of a volunteer. For this podcast episode, I wanted to revisit some of the people I had discovered in the archives all those years ago. Unfortunately, I couldn't get access to those particular collections, but I refused to give up on the idea of returning to this subject. By some estimates, almost 60,000 people volunteered to serve on the Republican side in Spain, including French, Germans, Polish, Italians, Americans, British, Yugoslavians, Czechs, Canadians, Hungarians and Scandinavians. What's more, my previous research into the topic impressed me with the fact that many of these volunteers were conscious of how historically momentous the war and their participation in the war was. It is because the volunteers so carefully chronicled their experiences in letters, diaries, photographs, newspaper articles and memoirs that such a large number of rich collections on the international brigades survive. So it did not take long to find one such collection. The Special Collections and Archives of Goldsmiths, University of London, hold the papers of one of the college's former teachers, Margot Heinemann. Margot was a writer, teacher and active member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. While a student at Cambridge University in the 1930s, she met and fell in love with fellow communist John Cornford. John was born in 1915 into a scholarly family. His father was a professor of ancient philosophy at Cambridge, and his mother was a poet and the granddaughter of none other than Charles Darwin. John inherited his mother's literary talent and started writing poetry in his teenage years. He was educated at exclusive private schools before returning to Cambridge to read history. By this time, though, and despite his privileged upbringing, John was a fervent left-wing thinker and activist. He had become interested in socialism in his early teens, and at seventeen joined the Young Communist League, the youth wing of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Two years later he became a fully fledged member of the party, while at Cambridge he wrote articles for left-wing papers and was an active member of the communist community of students. Cambridge University in the 1930s, largely a preserve of the middle and upper classes, may seem an odd place for a communist community to thrive, but thrive it did. Studying just a few years ahead of John Cornford were the likes of Donald MacLean, Guy Burgess, Kim Philby, Anthony Blunt, and John Cairncross, the notorious Cambridge Five spying who passed secret intelligence to the Soviet Union for decades and provided the inspiration for John Le Carre's Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Despite his ardent communism, John Cornford was not recruited by the Soviets. In 1936, at only 20 years old, he had completed his degree and was about to embark on postgraduate studies at Cambridge. But then, war broke out in Spain, and the course of John's life changed forever. The roots of the Spanish Civil War go back to the 19th century and are too complex to recount in full here. In essence, though, decades of economic stagnation, political instability, regime changes, corruption, strikes, mounting unrest, and the growth of disparate trends including militarism and anti-church hostility meant Spain was a tinderbox by the 1930s, as elsewhere in Europe The ascending political movements of socialism, anarchism, communism and fascism captured the imaginations of thousands and vied for popularity with older allegiances, including monarchism. In February 1936, a popular front coalition of left-wing parties, including socialists and communists, narrowly won a general election the Popular Front government were quick to enact changes, including releasing left-wing prisoners, introducing agricultural reforms, and secularizing education and marriage. These measures angered the landed aristocracy, supporters of the Catholic Church, and the right more broadly. Shortly after the election, a group of Spanish army officers, including General Franco, began conspiring to overthrow the left-wing government. The coup was launched in July 1936, with military uprisings across the country. They had some successes, but failed to capture key cities, including Madrid and Barcelona. The coup had failed, and Spain was now divided and at war. As a coalition of the right, the Nationalists sought to wrestle power from the coalition of the left – the Republicans. Back in England, John Cornford was quick off the mark. Within days of the military uprising, he was on his way to Spain, and by the 8th of August, he was in Barcelona. He is believed to have been the very first British volunteer to fight in Spain, though I could not verify this. From Spain, John wrote letters home to his girlfriend, Margot Heinemann. Three of these surviving letters are held in Heinemann's collection at Goldsmith's, and it was these letters that I went to see. Being able to read John's original letters... These personal notes between lovers, separated by war over 80 years ago, was a remarkable experience. The paper was yellowing, discoloured. Some pages are roughly torn around the edges, suggesting John was writing on bits of scrap paper. Deep creases down the centre of the pages reveal how they were folded, preserved like that, perhaps, for years. John wrote each of the letters in pencil, and in places the pencil markings are so faded or the paper is so discoloured that it is no longer possible to decipher what he wrote. None of the letters are dated, which makes placing them in John's timeline rather difficult, though there are just enough clues in what he writes to give us an approximate idea. The earliest of the three cannot date from earlier than mid-October 1936. When John had first arrived in Spain in August, he found it difficult to be admitted into any of the military units being rapidly formed by the Communist Party and Socialists, as he had brought no official documentation to prove his anti-fascist politics. So instead, he joined the militia of the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, or POUM. Incidentally, in December 1936, George Orwell would also join the POUM. But this is several months after John Cornford's brief service with them, so their paths did not cross. More on the POUM later. For now, though, so that we can fast forward to his letters, in brief, John took part in action in the region of Aragon, but after falling ill, he returned in September to Cambridge to recuperate. Not one to waste an opportunity, John recruited twelve friends for the cause while in England, and by the 6th October, He was on his way with them back to Spain. By now, the Republican-supporting international volunteer movement was being managed by the Communist International, or Comintern. The Comintern was an organisation controlled by Moscow that sought to bring about a global communist revolution. With Joseph Stalin's approval, the Comintern began founding international brigades for communist volunteers of different nationalities. There were battalions for the French, the Germans, the Americans, and so forth, as well as battalions with a mix of nationalities. A headquarters and training camp for the international brigades was established in October at Albacete, in the south-east of Spain. John and his recruits were the first British volunteers for these new international brigades. And so it is from Albacete that the first of John's letters is addressed. In the top right-hand corner he wrote the instruction Write to John Cornford, Miliziano, 5th Regimenti Popular, 22 Cai Salamanca, Albacetti. The letter, in a small, tight, neat script, follows. My dearest, things haven't been going so badly since my last letter. We are forming part of the 5th Regiment, an international column, mostly refugees or foreign workers living in France, a really tough crowd, militarily trained, and a real lot of really good guys organisation good, discipline not perfect, but far better than any Spanish unit I have yet seen. Altogether, so far, I'm well pleased. It makes a hell of a difference to be fighting of people you can be proud of and who are enthusiastic for the same politics as yourself. This appears to be a comment on how he had felt less than at home fighting with the POUM in northern Spain. John was a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain, affiliated with the Stalinist Comintern. The party was working with the Comintern and support from Russia to recruit British volunteers for the war in Spain. The POUM, in contrast, was a radical Marxist group, strongly critical of Stalin and the Soviet system, and accused by the Comintern of being Trotskyist. Having been a leading figure during the Russian Revolution, Trotsky was now in exile, and his followers in the Soviet Union were falling victim to Stalin's purges. The POUM and the Comintern-organised international brigades were uneasy bedfellows, and their mutual hostility erupted into actual violent conflict in Barcelona in May 1937, when POUM fighters, anarchists and libertarian socialists fought street battles against the Republican government and the pro-Comintern Communist Party of Spain. This distracting sideshow from the greater battle against the nationalists resulted in victory for the Comintern the POUM was driven underground, and many of its supporters, including George Orwell, who was in Barcelona during the fighting, fled the country. But at the time John Cornford was giving his reflections on the POUM, these events lay in the future. For now, John was satisfied with the political situation. Politically, things seemed fine. This district and all the way to Alicante is dominated by the party, by which he meant the Communist Party. He continued, The anarchists are enthusiastically saluting USSR, which they called a slave state when I left Spain last. Viva Russia is the most popular slogan here. This change of heart among the anarchists was probably owing to the organisational and material support that the Soviet Union had thrown into backing the republican cause over the previous weeks. As John continued to record his observations on the political scene, his handwriting became more difficult to read, requiring me, in places, to put in some guesswork. The impressive thing about the town is the complete economic stability. No panic. The people, or this might say party, in complete possession of the... something... businesses, but neither hoarding nor rolling up prices. Everywhere complete confidence in victory, the same as in Barcelona. I can't judge the army situation, but at least it isn't desperate. There's no doubt whatever in my mind, we're going to win the war. I reckon six to nine months as the probable duration. This was to prove a sorry underestimate for a war that would drag on for almost three years. In the meantime, there was the slog of day-to-day soldiering to endure. At the moment we're doing very little but drilling which would be useless in open country from a military point of view, but good in getting about mechanically. The endless drilling was also geared at imbuing some officers with some confidence and responsibility, and the lack of them seems a big problem with the Spanish army. The living conditions were terrible, as John eloquently wrote, A good many discomforts. Three shit houses for 700 men, and so filthy one has to fix a gas mask arrangement but apart from the quite big danger of disease, Bernard was taken off yesterday with a temperature of 103, we get on well enough. Bernard was Bernard Knox, a friend from Cambridge who John had persuaded to volunteer for Spain during his brief respite back in England. Stuck in squalid conditions, marching up and down all day, it is little wonder that John Cornford was itching for a more active role in the war, though he was under no illusions of the dangers that awaited. It will probably be a number of weeks before I get to the front, and then a short life but a merry one. Anyhow, I can fight with all my fire with this bunch, which I couldn't with P.O.U.M. Thus concludes the first letter, the longest and most complete of the three preserved at Goldsmiths. I will jump now to what is catalogued as the third letter in this collection. According to an anonymous note on the back of the letter, this was the last letter written, but for reasons I will explain shortly, I think it is the middle letter. Again there is no date, and this time also no location. The letter is brief, ending abruptly with no sign-off. The bottom of the page is unevenly torn, and the same anonymous hand on the back notes that the letter was censored. Presumably, the censoring was done by the common turn, and evidently it was done rather crudely by simply tearing off the bottom half of the page. What survives of the letter reads as follows, and once again I apologise, for there are a few words I could not make out. Darling, I don't know whether you've got any of my letters, but as things stand I am getting on well enough, being trained up, having a fairly good time, well fed and the best drinks in the world, thinking of nothing but food and drink and smokes and fatigue and things like that, with a very good guy. Nearly all, er, something, good, some of them very good, and the others, some of them, really first class. There isn't anything very much I can say. It is a good country here, and I'm quite enjoying things, but there's very little apart from that to say. I'll probably be here for a long time. I don't think this war will be over for a long time, but I am more certain than ever that we're going to win. It's a month and several days yet before going to the front. The final sentence I found very tricky to read, the first two words I could not make out, but it continues, an interesting life, very little, perhaps either repetition or responsibility, not knowing what's going to happen next, simply doing what we're told, not learning enough, but learning a good deal all the same. And there the letter abruptly ends, a letter that really brings home the mundanity of daily life for a new recruit endless training and waiting to go to the front. John's circumspection seems to suggest he knew he couldn't say much which would get past the censors, so it is very intriguing to speculate what he did talk about in the second half of this page which didn't meet the censors' approval. Given his optimism that the Republicans would win the war, he could hardly have been censored for defeatism, so my best guess is he was censored for sharing military information or writing on political subjects. Now the final letter, which I believe comes after the one above, as by this time John has finally been posted to the front line. The letter was the hardest to read of all. The pencil handwriting is faded in places, and the paper is badly discoloured. The jagged edges of the page suggest John tore off a bit of scrap paper to write a hurried note. Helpfully, John numbered the pages of this letter. Unhelpfully, his numbering reveals we are missing two pages of what he wrote. We only have pages one, four, five, and six. Were pages two and three removed by the censor or lost in the course of time? We simply do not know. Once again, there is no date on the letter and no location, but we can say fairly confidently that it was written no earlier than mid November, nineteen thirty six. On the first page, he wrote, I've been turned out of hospital too early and am now rather cold and living in a big stone barracks in reserve. This war has been pretty tough, and is going to be more so. In early November, 1936, John took part in the Battle of Madrid when the newly formed international brigades played a key role in defending the capital from a determined assault by nationalist forces. John was wounded in the head during this battle and sent back from the front to be patched up. This letter evidently was written during his recuperation. This brief reference to his injury aside, much of what survives of the letter is preoccupied with the difficulty John was having in sending news to Margot. He began the letter, Darling, only time for a brief note, which John Summerfield will deliver, but he's been called off so suddenly there's practically no time to write. John Summerfield had travelled with John Cornford to Spain. He was also in the Communist Party and a writer, who would the next year publish a book about his experiences in Spain. Later in the letter, Cornford explained why Summerfield had been tasked with carrying his letter back to England. John Summerfield will tell you how and whether it's at all possible to correspond. As far as I'm aware, no letter of any description has been able to get through to England, but I've now found out where the journalists hang out and I'll get one sent out from time to time. Getting a letter out amidst the chaos of a war-torn country must have been a challenging task indeed, but John was eager to reassure Margot, that no news was good news. But don't you worry, dear, and in particular, don't believe any reports of my death unless they come officially from brigade headquarters. They'll write to you at once if there is anything wrong. The remaining fragments of the letter are in a similar tone to the previous two, a sense of optimism mixed with an awareness of the struggles ahead. There's little enough sensible, I can say, and there's a very long way still between us, Still, the chances are that one day it will come to an end successfully, and after that, all that's been happening here will have its uses. This final letter is signed off, so bless you, love, and be happy and look after yourself. I love you more than ever. Bless you, dear. John A little over a month later, on the 27th of December, 1936, John's 3,000-strong International Brigade unit launched an attack on the nationalist-held town of La Pera in southern Spain. The International Brigade was undertrained and had no artillery or air support. The attack failed, and they suffered terrible casualties. One in ten were killed, and twice as many wounded. John Cornford died on, it is believed, the 28th of December. It was the day after his 21st birthday. The casualty rate at the Battle of Lepera is reflective of the heavy losses the international volunteers sustained throughout the war. It is hard to get precise estimates of exactly how many people volunteered from around the world, estimates of anywhere between 35,000 and 60,000 have been made, and how many perished in the war. Estimates of death rates range from 15% to 30% of all volunteers, with far more wounded besides. Grim statistics either way. And this is just one of a number of tragedies in this ferociously bloody civil war that, besides brutal fighting, saw widespread atrocities committed by both sides, including mass shootings, executions and torture. It is estimated around half a million people lost their lives in total, while as many again were rounded up into concentration camps after the war finished. Hundreds of thousands more fled the country. The war ended in a victory for the Nationalists, and the installation of Francisco Franco as dictator. John Cornford's optimism in victory, which permeated each of his letters, was not rewarded. But the Spanish Civil War was arguably the first chapter in the Second World War that would break out in Europe just five months after Franco's victory. And in that war, of course, fascism was eventually defeated. Many of the surviving international volunteers of Spain who had been galvanised to fight by their hatred of fascism, also fought in World War II. Among them was John Summerfield, the friend who had been tasked with carrying John Cornford's letter to Margot. He served in the Royal Air Force in India and Burma during the war, continued writing short stories, novels and articles, and died aged 83 in 1991. Summerfield dedicated his book on his Civil War experiences, Volunteer in Spain, to his friend John Cornford. Bernard Knox, John Cornford's friend who, you may recall, had been carted off at Albacete with a high temperature, survived his fever and the war. After leaving Spain, he emigrated to America and served with the American Intelligence Agency, the OSS, during World War II, undertaking dangerous missions behind enemy lines in France and Italy. After the war, he became a renowned classic scholar and died aged 95 in 2010. One wonders what direction John Cornford's life would have taken had he lived beyond 21. Would he have remained a committed communist after his experiences in Spain? Possibly. If he had, it is likely he would have come under close scrutiny from Britain's security service, better known as MI5. Communist and left-wing veterans and refugees from Spain were regarded as highly suspicious individuals. A quick search of the National Archives' digitised MI5 files returns many files documenting the activities, political and otherwise, of male and female veterans of the Spanish Civil War. These included international figures who rose to prominence after World War II. Many of the German, Polish, Czech and other Central and East European volunteers who survived the war lived to see Europe from Germany eastwards fall under Soviet sway after 1945 and many of these veterans became enthusiastic and leading players in those new communist societies. The international brigaders included future prime ministers of Hungary and Albania, senior ministers of most East European countries, and the future leader of East Germany's notoriously repressive secret police, the Stasi. One MI5 file intrigued me in particular, though. Ralph Fox was a journalist, novelist, historian, and leading member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. He was such a renowned communist that MI5 kept not one, but three files documenting his activities and movements from as early as 1921. In November 1936, at the age of 36, Fox travelled to Spain, and according to MI5's records, was appointed a political commissar to the British contingent of the International Volunteers. He was only to serve briefly in this post. On the 28th of December, Ralph Fox was killed in the attack on La Pera. According to some reports, John Cornford died while attempting to retrieve Fox's body. John Cornford was mourned by party members and fellow university students as a leading and unifying member of the socialist and communist movements. But he is perhaps best remembered today as a poet. During his brief months in Spain, John wrote prolifically, producing his most famous work, so it seems appropriate to end this episode with one of these poems, a poem he dedicated to Margot Heinemann, the girlfriend who received those three letters now preserved at Goldsmiths. Heart of the heartless world, dear heart, the thought of you is the pain at my side, the shadow that chills my view. The wind rises in the evening, reminds that autumn is near, I am afraid to lose you, I am afraid of my fear. On the last mile to Huesca, the last fence for our pride, Think so kindly, dear, that I sense you at my side. And if bad luck should lay my strength into the shallow grave, Remember all the good you can. Don't forget my love. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. I'll be back with a new story from the Archives on Thursday the 21st of April. Please subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you like to listen so you don't miss it. If you are enjoying this podcast, please also recommend it to your friends and family, and please do leave a review or rating on your favourite podcast app. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. John Cornford's letters from the Margot Heinemann papers are held at the Special Collections and Archives, Goldsmiths, University of London. MI5's files on Ralph Fox are from the KV2 series, digitised by the National Archives UK. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod.